0: This episode of Geeks Crossing is brought to you by today's sponsor, Anchor. Ever wanted to start a podcast but can't find the right platform to work with? Don't worry, Anchor has you covered. Anchor is a free audio app that allows you to record a podcast on any device no matter where you are. Anchor includes an editing feature that allows you to customize your podcast, whether it be on your computer or mobile device, so you can easily omit any errors or unnecessary parts. Anchor also allows you to distribute your podcast to other platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or even Google Podcasts, which is amazing. Did I mention the part about making money? No? Well, you could be earning money every time someone listens to your podcast with no minimum listenership. If that's not the easiest way to make a podcast, I don't know what is. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. We're now at Volume 4 for this Kingdom Hearts mini-series. I don't know about you guys, but I think it's going along well. Though I'm a huge fan of both Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2, Birth by Sleep proved that console games aren't the only solid games within the franchise and I got a similar vibe with another handheld entry. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about Kingdom Hearts 3D Dream Drop Distance. The 3D is both a reference to the literal 3Ds in the title, and the features of the Nintendo 3DS. For a while, this was the one game why I bought the 3DS in the first place. Also, Kid Icarus Uprising, which I might do a retrospective on one day. Not sure if any of the other members of Geeks Crossing have played it. it Maybe, Matt. I don't think Nick and Keith though. Shoutouts to you guys. Anyway. I'm glad I had the 3DS anyway because I wanted to preserve my Pokemon, Mario, and Kirby fixations. And this game actually looked interesting to me. A game where you play as both Sora and Riku respectively, and it was supposed to celebrate Kingdom Hearts' 10th anniversary. Yeah, Kingdom Hearts came out in 2002, believe it or not. And this game came out in 2012. One thing that definitely caught my attention was the fact that all the Disney worlds that were added were completely new. That means no Olympus Coliseum this time. Thank God, because I think they use that world way too much in these games. But I have to say, the world selection is... interesting, and at the same time, questionable. And that's where this episode comes in. I'll be judging these worlds based on quality and overall impact. As usual, I'm only focusing on worlds that are accessible. The following worlds that are included are Diving to the Heart, Destiny Islands, Disney Castle, Radiant Garden, Twilight Town, The Realm of Darkness, and Castle Oblivion. That leads our world list at 7. Literally half of the worlds in this game are inaccessible, so I apologize if this episode is on the shorter side compared to the other volumes. And once again, everything I say is just my opinion, so don't take offense to anything I say that's not ideal to some of you. Oh yeah, spoilers will be mentioned as well. I'm Eric from Geeks Crossing, and this is the Kingdom Hearts Dream Drop Distance Worlds ranked from worst to best. Number 7, Country of Musketeers. I just want to point out that just because this world is ranked at the very bottom, doesn't mean I hate it. In fact, I think Country Musketeers is a solid world, yet there's nothing that makes this world stand out so much. I mean, it's unique that we get a world based off a direct-to-video movie, that being Mickey, Donald, and Goofy, The Three Musketeers, and how they implement into the overall lore was unique. This was at a time before Mickey became a Keyblade wielder, or King for that matter, which begs the question, Is this world a past version of Disney Castle just like Timeless River in Kingdom Hearts 2? I don't fucking know. The plot holes in this game are perceptible. At least the stories were decent enough. Sora helps Mickey, Donald, and Goofy reach their full potential as musketeers and stop Pete's evil plan. Meanwhile, Riku helps Princess Minnie escape Pete's prison. Still, how the hell does Riku stopping Pete's trap affect Sora's version of this world? Another plot hole that this game doesn't try to resolve. Besides that, I like the music in this world and the bosses were alright for the most part. The Beagle Boys and P were decent bosses for Sora. Unfortunately, I can't fucking stand holy moly for Riku's side. This boss sucked. The way it constantly hides and forces you to waste time tracking it, not to mention splitting up its body parts so you waste even more time. Again, I don't think that this world was necessarily bad, but I don't remember it being too special either. Maybe there's a reason why young Zaynorb or any of his variants didn't appear in this world. Number 6. La City de Clause. I hope I'm saying that right. Some of you are probably surprised to see this world ranked so low. Don't get me wrong, I was completely down for having a world based off the hunchback of Notre Dame, and apparently this was an early decision on Square's part, since it was the first new world revealed in the teaser trailer. This world did a good job at providing areas based off the film, like the cathedral, the city of Notre Dame, and the cemetery as well. Although, because most of the areas were so massive, it made you feel like you were constantly backtracking, which easily got on my nerves. The music in this role was surprisingly epic, given the atmosphere that this film was based off, it's no wonder why. I did like the stories in each respective version, though. Sora helps Quasimodo and Phoebus save Esmeralda from being burned at the stake, and Riku tries to stop Frollo and his nightmare companion, whom he believes was judgment sent by God. And no, he doesn't realize the irony in using a demonic creature to spread God's judgment. Riku definitely left more of an impact to these characters because he helped Quasimodo realize that he can't keep imprisoning himself because of his own appearance. Granted, Sora tried to do that, but Riku nailed it. What holds this role back for me is the boss fights. Sora and Riku both fight the gargoyle, and I fucking hate this boss. Its overpower moves and unorthodox attack pattern kept me enraged. And this was an early game boss, by the way. Talk about slapping you in the fucking face with difficulty. At least Riku's version was slightly easier. Also, why wasn't Frollo a boss? If you can make Disney villains like not Clayton and Sean Yu bosses, then why couldn't you do the same thing to Frollo? I know I definitely would have enjoyed bashing Frollo in the head with my keyboard considering all the shit he did in the film. Overall, La City de Claus is a good world, but problematic. Also, in case you're wondering, La City de Claus is French for the City of Bells. I should have mentioned that earlier. Hey, better late than never. Number 5. Prankster's Paradise Pinocchio's world was eluded numerous times in previous games, until Dream Drop Distance finally revealed the world Pinocchio and Jiminy originated from, which is Prankster's Paradise. Right off the bat, they made this world completely different by depending on who you play as. Sora explores Pleasure Island while Riku is sadly inside the body of Monstro, which makes sense because of the stories they were trying to tell. Sora helps Jiminy find Pinocchio who's running around Pleasure Island. Riku does the same thing except he's inside Monstro. Pretty much they're covering each a certain act from the film. You guys know I hate Monstro with a passion. Believe it or not, Triple D fixed Monstro by making the world layout more structured and not nearly as confusing. Of course, this doesn't change my opinion on Monstro, but least Square made an effort to fix it. Exploring Pleasure Island was actually fun, as they expanded the island by including a circus tent and a trail that leads to the ocean. Yes, Sora can walk, jump, and breathe underwater like it's nothing. I don't know if it's supposed to be a reference to the movie, or considering that this is a dream and nothing's supposed to make sense, Either way, this was fucking awesome. And I love the music in Sora's side. It's so cheerful that it makes you forget you're on a cursed island. And the Monstro field slash battle theme from KH1 returns in Riku's side. I also enjoyed the boss fights. Chill Clopster provided a decent challenge for Sora, and I love how towards the end you ride on Monstro who's trapped in a giant bubble. Char Clopster is pretty much a duplicate, but slightly easier. Prankster's Paradise does have a share of problems, though. For starters, I would have liked to see more locations from the film be featured because I'm sure we all remember the scene where Pinocchio gets trapped in Stromboli's cage, clearly happening on Pleasure Island. And the only new character they added from the film was the Blue Fairy. And she doesn't even do anything except inform Sora that Pinocchio and Jiminy went to locate Monstro. They could have utilized her more. She could have been one of those Disney allies that specialize in magic who helped Sora and company throughout the series, like Yen Sid, Merlin, or hell, even the Fairy Godmother. And come on, Square. You didn't include Lampwood or the evil Coachman? The two most prominent characters during the Pleasure Island act? I was looking forward to beating the shit out of the coachman for turning all those boys into donkeys. Sadly, that didn't happen. Prankster's Paradise is still a good world though. Number 4, The Grid. This is where we really get into the Bizarre category. Yes, Square decided to make a separate world dedicated to Tron Legacy, when they could have easily saved the Tron sequel for a future return to space paranoids. However, they did make some sense out of it. As I stated before when I ranked the worlds from KH2, Anson the Wise created Space Paranoids by copying another computer system, and that said computer system turned out to be the grid. Putting lore aside, you guys know I love techno-themed levels, and this world exemplifies that trope. The digital aesthetics are more polished this time. I mean, Tron Legacy came out 28 years after the first film, so of course they amplified the graphics. And the music is amazing as well. Story-wise, they not only follow events from the film, but also hiding some of the lore they established with Space Paranoids. Sora teams up with Korra to find Tron's source code so they can refer Grinzler back into Tron. Riku teams up with Sam to find the portal that'll take him and his father back to the real world. Of course, Clue isn't going to let any of that stuff happen. Riku's side was definitely more based around the film story, so I didn't feel that engaged. I was, however, more infested with Sora's side considering him and Tron formed a strong bond back in Kingdom Hearts 2, which made their fight even more impactful. Rinzler is not only the best Disney villain boss fight in this game, but one of the best within the series in general, because Sora was forced to fight a friend in order to save him, and the feels man where Brinsler tried reaching for Sora's hand as he was falling to his doom. Yeah, the Sam and Kevin scene was good too, but I cared more about Sora and Tron's dynamic. Comantis, which was the boss fight in Riku's side, was decent, except for that one light cycle move where it takes out over 75% of your health. Speaking of which, the light cycle minigame improved a lot since KH2 by having better controls and a laser feature. If I can nitpick on one thing though, it would have to be the scene where young Xehanort and Xemnas confront Sora. They clearly stated that Data can't sleep, and Sora is in the real world. If that's so, then why the hell is this a sleeping world to begin with? I don't know if there's something I missed, but that just adds more to the game's plot holes. Despite that, The Grid was an amazing world, and I think it's on par with Space Paranoids. Number 3, Traverse Town. Starting off in the top 3, we have the oh-so-iconic Traverse Town. You guys know I love Traverse Town for its lore and how vital it is to Sora's first journey, a world that acts as a refuge for those who lost their homeworlds to the darkness. I was definitely excited to see this world return in this game. It was the first sleeping world that Sora and Riku visited during their Mark of Mastery exam. Compared to the first game, Traverse Town received a huge upgrade. Not only did we get the return of all three districts, but new areas were added as well, such as the 4th and 5th districts, the Fountain Plaza, and even a huge-ass post office that's found underneath that little mailbox. The music has been amplified as well, adding more jazz to it. This may irritate some people, but I think this music is better than Cage ones version. Hey, opinions. Probably the most interesting thing to talk about is how Sora and Riku meet characters from The World Ends With You, who informed the duo, mainly Joshua, about the split realities in each sleeping world. Obviously, I had no idea who these characters were, but it's nice to see Square incorporate another IP in the Kingdom Hearts other than Final Fantasy. And I think it was thanks to this game that The World Ends With You became so popular. I guess it's only a matter of time before we see any characters from Dragon Quest, or, if we're lucky, the Bouncer. Just kidding, that's never gonna happen. Anyway, Traverse Town was the only world in this game that players visit twice over the course of the story. Like I said, the first visit was about introductions and shit. The second visit had Sora and Riku help Neku and his friends try to stop the Spelican. A nightmare that's able to move freely between the realities in each sleeping world. Sadly, they couldn't stop it in time. As for bosses, Sora and Riku both fight Haku Monkey in the first visit. Decent first boss, except its stretchy arms can be very annoying to block slash avoid. In the second visit, Riku doesn't get a boss fight, oddly enough. Sora, on the other hand, is forced to fight the first three nightmare bosses he faced in the game, courtesy of the Spelican. Those being Haku Monkey. Gargoyle, and for some reason Char Clopster despite it being the boss from Riku's side. I used to hate this boss rush when I first played this game, because imagine fighting all these large-ass bosses on a small-ass DS screen. Yeah, it wasn't pleasant. Thankfully, playing this game on consoles made this boss rush much more tolerable, and in some cases, fun. Speaking of fun, I actually like the Flick Rush minigame in the 5th District. Essentially, you pin your spirits against other spirits in a tournament-like setting. Even though the gameplay does remind me too much of Chain of Memories, it was still fun. Overall, it was great to see Traverse Town make a comeback, and I hope we get to explore this world again in a future game, because the lore behind this world is still an enigma. Also, i like to see Neku and the others return again. I mean Sora did promise that he'd visit them in Shibuya. Of course, if you guys played Kingdom Hearts 3 Remind, that statement is now questionable. Number 2. The World That Never Was If you guys thought I was excited to see Traverse Town return, Imagine the smile on my face seeing this world return as well. The world that never was ended up becoming my favorite world in KH2, and in some cases, it was the perfect world for me to experience. Once again, this world serves as the last location for Sora and Riku's journeys, but it felt divided in terms of exploring. Sora mainly treks through the Dark City, which is more expansive this time, and Riku primarily explores the castle that never was. The god-level music returns, yet they somehow made it sound better. Just when you think the music in past worlds sounded perfect, here comes Dream Drop Distance amplifying them, and I love that. And because this is the last world, you already know shit's about to go down. Sora learns from young Xehanort and Zigbart that the plans Antom and Xemnas had before were just stepping stones into Master Xehanort's true plan, or the purpose of Organization 13 for that matter. As an effort to start another Keyblade War, Xehanort wants to divide his heart among 13 vessels, clash against 7 Hearts of Light, forge the almighty Keyblade, and summon Kingdom Hearts. Holy shit, what happened? Kingdom Hearts went from being about a boy trying to save his friends from darkness, to now trying to stop a maniacal philosopher who's hell-bent on trying to create a universal revolution. (sighs) Anyway, they plan to make Sora the 13th vessel, but thankfully Riku and Mickey come along to save him. Prior to this, Riku learns that this whole time he's been traveling through Sora's dreams, as he was like a dream eater of some sorts. Believe me, it sounds stupider than it sounds. Despite my negativity, this was the biggest plot twist within the series at the time. If anything, it got me more hyped for Kingdom Hearts 3. The boss fights were definitely intense. I mean, it's the last world, so they need to be. Sora only has one boss fight, and that was against Xemnas. Not as engaging as his previous fights from KH2, but they were still solid enough. Riku, on the other hand, has not one, not two, but four bosses in this world. Okay, technically the last boss is fought in the Dive to the Heart, but as I said, that world is inaccessible. The first boss fight was against Anti-Blackcoat. Pretty decent boss, if you didn't have that one move that drains 99% of your health. Riku has another showdown with Anthem, which lasted two phases. The second phase was more nerve-wracking given all the attacks he unleashes. However, he's nothing compared to young Xehanort. Oh my god. This asshole doesn't give you a chance to breathe, and just when you think it's all over... He unleashes some bullshit where you have to destroy his clock within a short period of time. And if you don't, you have to start the fight all over again until he's back at zero health, where you have to repeat this cycle over and over again until you beat the clock in a certain number of time. God, I hate this fight so much. But at the same time, I kinda like this difficulty that the game throws at you. What can I say, I'm a complicated guy. Sadly, you won't find anything difficult about the true final boss, Nightmare Armor. It's not a terrible boss, but it's way too easy compared to young Xehanort. Even though these bosses did get on my nerves, I still love the world that never was, and it continues to be one of my favorite worlds in general. Number 1, Symphony of Sorcery. My favorite world in Dream Drop Distance is Symphony of Sorcery. What are the chances that my number one world would be something Disney related? Then again, the last three ranking episodes had original worlds as number one, so it's nice to change it up a bit. This may sound surprising, but I'm not a huge fan when it comes to Fantasia. In fact, I was a little disappointed when this world got announced. I was like, really? What's the point? We already have Yen Sid and Mysterious Tower. How can you make a world that's based off a Disney film that's just music and no real plot? As soon as I got the game though, I was eating those words. This world was beautiful. Square really went above and beyond to make sure they stayed true to source material. By having the entire world be nothing but music, by omitting any battle quotes or sound effects, I couldn't believe in myself. The aesthetics really stand out for this world as well. Starting off in the tower where the Sorcerer's Apprentice plays in the background, but the real treatment lies within the songbooks that send Sora and Riku in different locations. Sora venturing through Cloudwalk which connects to the Glen, where the music that plays is Pastoral, or Beethoven's Symphony No. 6. And Riku explores Moonlight Slash Goldenwood that transitions to Snow Wood with the Nutcracker Suite playing in the background. God, these were such great choices. Story-wise, Sora and Riku both must find a sound idea so they can wake up Mickey who's under the spell of the Spelican. Like Country of Musketeers, this world took place sometime in the past before Mickey became a Keyblade wielder. Of course, they don't specify if this world is a past version of Mysterious Tower or of its own separate world. Still, it was great to see Sora finally get revenge on the Spelican for all the shit it costs back in Traverse Town. Yeah, the boss fight can be annoying at times, especially chasing it down with flow motion, but I actually like it believe it or not. Riku fights Disney Satan, or Chernabong as he's sometimes called, at Bald Mountain. How fitting. Compared to his KH1 fight, they definitely simplified it by making it a dive boss, where he just avoid his evil underlings and hit his nipple three times. I don't know about you guys, but I think that's hilarious. And to top it off, we get to see slash hear Sora and Riku compose Dearly Beloved as a way to wake up Mickey in the end. This was the first time we hear Dearly Beloved play in a Disney world. That's insane. Symphony of Sorcery was not only a pleasure for my sight, but for my hearing as well, and I have no regrets putting it as number one. This was definitely the hardest out of all the Kingdom Hearts ranking videos that I've done so far. These were all good worlds, don't get me wrong. Just most of them fall flat on certain parts. At least they made up for it by having an excellent soundtrack, which I think is the game's biggest strength if I'm being honest. Speaking of soundtrack, Melody of Memories is currently out, and I'm loving it so far. And this is coming from a guy who doesn't play rhythm games all too much. However, next episode, I'm finally talking about Kingdom Hearts 3, as I'm sure most of you have been waiting for that. This has been an episode of Geeks Crossing. Subscribe and join our Discord server if you haven't already, and have yourselves a great day.